From the beginning of cinema, there have been myriad historical epics, limitless in their budgets, sweeping in their scope, and grandiose in their productions, that have also been unabashedly, wholeheartedly, irredeemably, steaming, bubbling, roiling crocks of shit. From George Armstrong Custer being devastated that his promises weren't kept to his good friends the Sioux and they died with their boots on, to William Wallace secretly usurping the line of kings in Braveheart. Hollywood just can't stop making shit up about past people and events. Honestly, we should be all pretty used to it by now, and when it comes to making white men look better than they were, we kind of are. That's not to say that being packed full of lies, half-truths, and whole-cloth fabrications immediately makes a movie bad. They could be artful, gorgeous, or even brilliant pieces of cinema while still not having a single leg of historical fact to stand on. Today's film is not one of those movies. Not in that it isn't artful or gorgeous or that it doesn't have moments of brilliance, but in that it has a lot more than a single leg to stand on where the history is concerned. It's a meticulously researched film about a culture and a people most of us never learned about, but that have permeated through popular culture without ever getting their own moment on the big screen. And right about now, you can queue up Bo Burnham's Welcome to the Internet, because all of that meticulousness did nothing to save this movie from stirring up controversy online. We knew back when we first selected this movie that it was going to be a tough discussion since, content warning, it deals extensively with rape and the West African slave trade, but it's a gripping war film driven by black women made in a time when stories like this are still having a hard time getting the green light. How could we not want to discuss it? What we didn't immediately realize was how vocal the opposition is to this movie's very existence. We couldn't announce this episode on our Facebook page without trolls climbing out from under their 8chan bridges to spam us with dubious articles and demand that we tell the real truth about this travesty of a film. Look, I have personally broken my foot off in movies that grasp at validation they don't deserve by claiming they're based on a true story. And we have a pretty clear track record on this show of calling films into question when they play fast and loose with the facts, like in Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan. And especially when there's a dubious agenda at play, like there kind of is in Gettysburg. And this one is no exception. In between discussions about some truly phenomenal performances and some beautiful costume and production designs, we examine a lot of the choices this film makes in depicting the history and the social and political nuances of past civilizations, and why those choices might have been made. The big difference with this movie is that we also found ourselves having to examine the criticism the same way because there are a lot of questions to be asked, and there are valid criticisms to be made. But the extreme tone and outlandish accusations made in various comment sections make me think that the Venn diagram of people viscerally angry at this film's historical accuracy, and people who are actually just concerned with ethics and gaming journalism in the mid-20-teens, might just be a circle. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So, listen to Izogi, drink some whiskey, and come kill your tears with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we discuss Gina Prince Bythewood's 2022 action packed, possibly slightly revisionist, brutally PG 13 period MMA extravaganza, The Woman King. 
Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my awesome partners, Katie and Liam. And today we are here for our third attempt at recording this episode. We had kind of some, we got caught up in the schedule a little bit, and we had this planned a while ago, but things got in the way. But we are finally here to talk about 2022's The Woman King. And Katie's here to start us off with her mission briefing. Six years in the making, The Woman King was a film inspired by history. Our favorite kind of movie. It's set in the West African kingdom of Dahomey during the 1820s, now part of the country of Benin. It follows the story of three Agoji warriors, General Naniska, played by Viola Davis, young recruit Nawe in a breakout performance by Thuso Mbedu, and the indomitable Izogi from Lashana Lynch in a gloriously intense turn as a berserker warrior. It weaves these three women's stories together as they navigate a strict society that is in flux, dealing with the pressures and demands of the transatlantic slave trade, as well as rival kingdoms vying for control of as much territory as possible. Oddly enough, this film only exists because of the perseverance of Maria Bello, who, among other efforts to keep this story alive, tried to recruit Viola Davis for the lead role while giving her an award. Upon release, the film was met with mostly love by critics and audiences, with high praise going to the performances, cinematography, directing, and set design, as well as some gentle criticism for the bloated plot. It was also met with a barrage of hot takes that excoriated the film for various historical reasons, some deserving of merit and others totally baseless. We have been planning this episode since we heard about the movie. Various factors led to a delayed recording and release, so this is my first opportunity to ask you guys this particular question in that context. What did you think of the film when you first heard about it, and did it live up to those expectations, good or bad? Liam. (laughs) (laughs) Liam's like a vampire. He has to be invited in. I do. I love picking (laughs) one of you at the when, especially when I haven't told you what the question is beforehand. (laughs) I got to say my expectations were reasonably high. I love Viola Davis. Who doesn't? Only Philistines. Right. (laughs) Stupid Philistines. I did not think I was going to hear that word on the podcast today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here to surprise. Thank you, Katie. No, they were reasonably high. The title seems to me like oddly provocative. I mean, just in far as far as like the structure of like the those words in that order the woman king right it's not a phrase that we're used to hearing so it kind of grabs you it's a title that feels like it has a little bit of a chip on its shoulder i feel like like it's called the woman king say something okay you know what i mean like just a little bit not necessarily in a bad way i think that that's just like it struck me as an interesting choice to be like 
it's it's a pretty bold step, I think. Like it's a like a first foot forward. And I didn't read much about it or into it. I was interested in seeing it. Had pretty high hopes. Heard that it was based on a true story. I have mixed feelings about those things, but I'm like, no shit. If there was like a woman who was living as a king in Africa, like that's that's awesome. I love that. There were lots of women who lived as kings in Africa, for sure. Yeah, I'm like, that's a story that I think I'd, I'd be interested in hearing. And I'd love to hear why it's the woman king instead of the queen. Like that is, I'm here for this. It was not necessarily the movie that I anticipated seeing when I finally saw it. In large part because she's not a king through like 99% of this movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's more like an aspirational sort of like playing we are the champions at the end, but you spend most of the movie not being the champions. This is a Mighty Ducks situation, is what you're telling me here? Right, exactly. It's a very, no, it's not Mighty Ducks. It's higher (laughs) stakes than that. I'm not trying to diminish anything here. I'm just saying that it's like, I think Woman King, I'm like, oh, I get to see this woman be this king in this movie. Right. And that's not really the movie that you get. You get to see a badass woman in a, she's a general, she's a, she's fucking killing it out there. She's doing great. But then it's like the king picks a, a running mate kind of vice president sort of vibe from it interesting okay towards the end so i found that a little bit underwhelming but that's my initial reaction to it and sort of the movie that was delivered was not quite what i was expecting yeah i i don't have anything uh with a very wide contrast from what liam just said mostly because i didn't know anything about the movie you know me there's there are very few trailers or announcements or Hollywood production stuff that I seek out and pay attention to through the years. I kind of just wait for things to trickle down to me and for people to be like, oh, my God, the new Spider-Verse is amazing. You have to go see it. And then I'm like, it is amazing. And you do have to see it. Probably a bad example, because I would have seen that anyways, because I like the first one so much. <laughs> but nonetheless, I don't really seek things out. I sort of wait for things to trickle down until I hear about stuff that everyone is loving. And this is one that I like heard whispers about but it wasn't on everyone's lips and i didn't know that much about it and then i think maybe i saw that it was on netflix and so then you're like oh cool this is free sort of i can like watch this later so i kind of didn't think about it i will agree with liam not that i was disappointed but that the title really sticks out i think the title is a bold statement especially when you don't know anything about the history and it kind of gives you a little bit of a Joan of Arc kind of feel, right? Where you're thinking like, oh, this is going to be not just a woman protagonist, but she is going to inherit a kingdom or take over a kingdom or like she's going to be a monumental historical figure. And I don't wouldn't say I was disappointed because I think, first of all, she's a fictional character. She's loosely based on a real person or, you know, they take things here and there. Um, and the character is plausible, but it's not like Joan of Arc. It's not an actual historical figure. So I can only have so many expectations about a person who didn't technically exist. And uh, yeah, I feel the same way. I was more like surprised at the end. I think by the time the end of the movie came, not to jump too far ahead, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot that there's some kind of 
woman king in this title and apparently it's happening right now right because right but mostly for good reasons because the rest of the movie was so enthralling with the action and the training and the drama and the story that i didn't really care you know i i probably wrote it off early as like oh maybe this is just a bad title or this is a marketing title like it didn't really it wasn't that important to me because i did spoiler alert mostly enjoy this movie and so i kind of just let the movie take me and i didn't really worry about the title after that but initially the title is probably the thing that stuck out to me the most again not in a positive or negative way just kind of i was curious about it katie were you in were you in the film know-how like getting previews thing on this i i was not screening at this point i haven't been screening since covid just due to life stuff um but Twitter was still a, a place you could go and not be inundated with gross things. So <laughs> I was much more plugged into my film critic community than I okay. am now, unfortunately. And uh, the expectations for this were high, both on the critic level and on my own level, because I love Viola Davis. I saw a lot of opportunity for her in this role. Gina Prince-Bythewood, who's the director, I have heard nothing but great things about. I knew this was a very Black-led film. It's not written by Black folks, but Gina Prince-Bythewood is Black. Uh, All of the principal actors are Black. Uh, A lot of the crew was Black, and they did their best to really dig into the history on this. So I knew that going in, and so I was very interested to see it, because... There was a certain part of this movie that also tickled my, like, old MGM classics, where we are spending ridiculous amounts of money with a thousand extras and making this extravaganza that I was really excited to see. And then I watched the stupid online controversy unfold, which I also was like, oh, this is coming and I'm not looking forward to it. And it was worse than I expected, which it always is. But, I mean... I think it kind of exceeded my expectations, if because my expectations for these kinds of big Hollywood movies, because this was obviously aimed to be a uh, big budget action film, all caps on the first letters, and it does that and then kind of works a little past that and does a little more heavy lifting than I expected out of it, honestly. Yeah, it's interesting to hear how what your recollection is of the marketing and stuff. Because again, I have zero recollection of that. So because you never you never watch the marketing, whereas I I watch all the trailers and all the marketing and get first day glimpses and all right, that right, stuff right. because I love that. Yeah, I remember there was a good bit of there was some Oscar hopefulness. I don't know if it was necessarily buzz in the lead up. There was a lot of like, Hey, maybe guys like don't forget woman King. Like, but it, it really came to nothing. And I was kind of disappointed about that sight unseen. It was just like, Oh, well I hope good things for this movie, but it, it did not come to fruition. No, Viola Davis won her best supporting actress with fences. So now the Academy has acknowledged her and we can all move on. Right. Is right. kind of the impression I've been getting with the Academy lately, but you don't need more than one. I mean, there's only one Meryl Streep. <laughs> uh, and his name is Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Daniel Day Lewis for my left foot. Daniel Day Lewis in In the Name of the Father. Daniel Day Lewis. In Gangs of New York. Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. Daniel Day-Lewis, Lincoln. Daniel Day-Lewis, Phantom Thread. Everybody forgets that Catherine Hepburn has the most. 
Does she? She has the most competitive acting Oscars, four Best Actress awards. We stand a queen, uh, as they say. And no, no supporting because she usually wasn't supporting. Very rarely supporting. Who puts Catherine Hepburn as your supporting actress? No, like, maybe when she was young. I'm just asking. No, when she was very young, yes, <laughs> she did not always get top billing. She must have had an introducing credit at some point, right? She was also named box office poison at one point. Oh wow! Okay, along with uh, a host of others. But yeah, no, she she won four competitive acting Oscars, all best actress. Didn't show up to collect a single one of them, and they just kept giving them to her. One of my favorite little facts that I learned about this is something I mentioned in in my mission briefing is that Viola Davis got this film pitched to her like she was accepting this award that I had a really hard time tracking down. Um, It's some little museum in L.A. that does rotating exhibits or whatever. And she gets she gets it pitched to her and she's like, "Eh, I'm not really sure I'm up for that right now. And then. This is from Maria Bello? From Maria Bello directly, yes. She said that at the time, it didn't feel right for her as an actress. And then as she reads more about it and as she's pursued, she decides to take it on as a challenge and because she thinks she can do something with this role. The shoot for this was grueling. All of the main players, well, all of the main women players in this were doing strength training mm-hmm. 90 minutes in their morning and then they're doing fight practice and martial arts and running and all this and then they're doing their shoots for the day like it was an intense shoot and viola davis talked about how like her fitness level went from like maybe a two to like a 10 and it was super hard for her but she was really gratified with how much that work paid off in the final product. Katie, was this filmed on location or was this filmed in studio and green screen or a combination of the two? Uh, this is mostly filmed in South Africa. Uh, South Africa, Ghana, and Benin, which I couldn't find where the scenes in Benin are, but that's cool because that's more accurate. The palace scenes. Okay. All those palace scenes and the scenes on that uh compound for lack of a better word those are in benin and historically accurate to that time period right but they built it is a set right like they built all that no no the palace is a thing they used an original palace yeah that was what i that was what i was able to determine like only only through interviews of interviews that i'll get into of um this guy who's super involved in um, both African spirituality and the black nationalist movement. He knows that palace because he went there in Benin. Oh, that's really cool. (laughs) So I think part of that is very much filmed on quote unquote location for where they're depicting in the film. I I suspect the combination of things, again, I don't know if and when they use some sound stages, although a lot of it is filmed in, again, South Africa, Ghana, and Benin. I suspect that what happened a lot is for the far background, they probably tarped it over with green screen so that they could do more early 1800s, less developed. Well, because, you know, there's cities and there's skyscrapers and stuff. So I'm sure they had to do some of that. But yeah, for the most part, what you are seeing 
is relatively accurate for the place. Granted, South Africa and Tahomi slash what now has been in are very far apart. And there are a couple of small goofs. You hear them talking about sloths and it's like sloths are only in South America. That's not a thing there. And also apparently the antelope that are in one of the scenes are like South and East African antelope with a... I think either North American or European elk call. So <laughs> whoever's doing the animal stuff was like, ah, you <laughs> fucked up, but it's okay. The rest of the research and history is pretty damn good. So yeah, back to the training real quick. Uh, Daniel Hernandez was the stunt coordinator and he had to kind of figure out, I, I don't think they had a good record of exactly how and what the Agoje, which we'll talk about in a second were trained in fighting like there isn't a manual right so he had to sort of figure out what kind of realistic close quarters combat mixed with firearms can we make up for this film that will make sense and be plausible and so he trained the actors who did a lot of their own stunts it is a lot of it is them doing this fighting rolling around they trained in jujitsu the Filipino knife fighting style known as Kali, Chinese Wushu, a lot of machete and staff work. And indeed, as Katie mentioned, they spent five months training, lifting weights, three and a half hours of stunt stuff, as well as cardio, a lot of training. And you can see it not just in their bodies and how tight and muscular they are, how quickly they respond, their reflexes, like the actual choreography. But I think it also plays a part in just their confidence as actors. You know, it's just a whole thing when you can physically match the character that you're supposed to be. And I think you really see it uh, when they come out and let's say General Naniska comes out and they're doing some kind of either ceremony or song or something to pump themselves up. And you're like kind of terrified. You're like, wow, these women are definitely into this and about to get into some shit. Like, they're ready to fight. You know what I mean? So, like, you can just Mm -hmm. tell that it was very cohesive and all of that really helped them deliver the performance that they needed to to play these warrior women. Yeah, I think Lashana Lynch's performance in particular is so uh, physical. She is giving it her all in every scene. And she has a lot of very physical scenes, like in particular the the moment where her and the male warrior have the spear up against their oh, that's a good scene, yeah, their chest, and they're both pushing on it to see who's going to give first. And then when she wins, her celebration is just feels so right in that moment. Mm-hmm. How intense and loud she is about it was like. Because you also want to celebrate with her. Look at how awesome you are showing off your prowess in battle. Yeah, no, she's she's one of those favorite characters that, you know, and you see this archetype in most of these types of films. And spoiler alert, that person almost always dies. Yeah, totes. So, like, that was not a surprise to anyone, right? Uh, you know. I'm not smart, so it was a surprise to me, but I believe you. <laughs> I would know. I'm just like watching. I'm like, okay, so she's the one that's going to die that we don't want to die. I didn't want to believe it, Liam, but I knew it was coming. I understand. But you have to trust yourself sometimes, Katie. I know. Like- but no, Lashana Lynch was, was excellent in this. Unpopular opinion. Oh, boy. I love Viola Davis. I thought she was a little one note in this. I think, and it's not necessarily her fault. I think it's partly the nature of the performance, uh, but it, it felt like very, like it was, it was always thrown off about the same energy. The person who I was blown away by 
mm-hmm. was Thuso Mbedu. Holy shit, she's so fucking good. Like, yeah. so fucking good. The arc that you see her go through from, like, if you compare the the first time we see her in the movie to the scene when Azogi dies. Yes. Mm-hmm. 100%. Whole, like or she has that guttural scream oh man and it's like those two polarities in the same movie are amazing just in and of themselves but all of the different levels that we get for this character throughout there's humiliation there's contrition there's braggadocio there's this this character is all over the place in this movie and she fucking nails every single note. Like that was the performance I couldn't stop watching. Let's not forget about the slight romance that she has. That's like a sprinkle. It's a sprinkle. It's stupid and it shouldn't be there. But yeah, sure. <laughs> I agree, but it's not something that I wouldn't expect for a gender swapped version of this. No, that's fine. I just didn't love it in this. There's a few things I didn't love in the plot, but yes. The plot aside, yes. she still gives a good performance Absolutely. with that guy. And it's a hard thing. I was like, oh, you are doing your best, girl, with this. Like, that guy is not given anything. No, <laughs> God, it's, no uh, apologies to that actor. but He's serving some pecs. Dude, but, yeah, no, I yeah. think that's what happened is someone caught him with his shirt off and they were like, we have got to throw this guy in some kind of love scene. <laughs> I was yep, like, and that's you, you were fun. just on the ship from freaking Brazil, just pumping iron. <laughs> yeah. Right, I, I mean, right. the man looks great cupping his own junk, but. <laughs> right. Exactly. But that's all he's there for, which is fine. I think in this movie, he can be the sexy lamp in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he did a little bit more. Okay. Maybe not his acting, but his character represented a little bit more. He is representing a little bit of the different mixed culture that is in Brazil and how mixed blood was kind of like a part of society in Brazil. And of course, like, you know, his mother being from Dahomey is like this added layer of sentimentalism that's probably not realistic for the time period and whatever. Like, what are the chances? But it was cool. And like, it was a connection that gave it a little more than just some throwaway love story. Like, meaning, yeah, I could care less about the love story between him and Naoi, but I like that he had a connection to these people and he had a reason to care. It wasn't just like, I don't know. Do we have to have slaves? I like people. Let's be nice. You know what I mean? It wasn't like this implausible thing. It's like, well, it's his mother's village. Like, of course, he's going to care right. about these people. It gives him it gives him a reason. I'm trying to be better about just like, I know it doesn't always seem like it. I'm trying to. <laughs> Liam's trying, everybody. I, I'm putting in work to try to meet movies where they are for shit like this where I really didn't need this to have a love story mm-hmm. and I really didn't need it to have a secret mother daughter relationship, sure. but like, I'm trying to be like, okay, so that's, yes. I guess that's the movie I'm watching now. And I'm just going to try to roll with that. I don't do it very well, but I want everybody to know that I know I don't do it well. And I'm, I'm making an effort. Fair enough. I mean, look, I, I don't know what it's like to write a screenplay. That's, trying to be accurate to real history and using some historical figures, but then making some up and doing, you know, this movie doesn't need to be two hours and 15 minutes long. Let's all be clear about that. 
fair. But my point is, when you are creating fictional characters that have a connection to history, I imagine the challenge as a writer is to make some kind of emotional connection where you're trying to make them feel real because you can't just say, okay, this person is based on some leader of these uh, female warriors, the Goji, and she's wearing the right outfit and she has the right relationship to the king and she's acting the way she would have acted. But like, you have to create a real person, right? And you can't just rely on the actor to do that. I mean, I'm just talking about out of my ass here. I haven't written a screenplay. I'm just saying, I feel like maybe that's where some of these things are coming from, the connection. And, you know, you want to talk about Viola Davis being a little one note playing this character, which I don't necessarily disagree with. Like her performance is good. There's just not that much variety to it, but having the violence and rape and childbirth aspect of it does like add a lot more layers to the character. So I don't know, maybe they missed a little bit, but I feel like that's what they're going for now. It felt almost like a studio exec was like, (laughs) like on their, on their cigar, just puffing away, just, (laughs) What if they were mother and daughter and it'd be like, fuck, whatever gets this movie made, man. Yep. Yep. Is what it felt like. But I could also see it being a self-imposed that thing where you're like, oh, studios are going to eat this up. They're mother and daughter. It's going to be great. Secret daughters. Like that's almost a a weird little trope of itself. Like in Mm -hmm. uh, like in hot shots where it's like, right. You have the the scene in the, the bunk where it's Eagle River. And everybody's cousins grew up together and whatnot. But I mean, I I definitely think that if you take this location and the historicity factor out of it and set this story, the the dramatic beats of the story, the emotional connections of the story in New York in the 1980s or whatever, right? Like you make it a totally different story, but you hit those points. I think it would come off much more tropey and much more like, okay, I know what's happening here, like this and this and this. Now, maybe I'm being distracted by the beautiful sets and the cinematography and the fact that I have never heard a story told about these people or from this perspective. And so I'm really interested and it's different and unlike anything I've ever seen before. Maybe I'm being more lenient towards any tropiness or archetypal writing or whatever. But again, I don't know, man. In this, I feel like it works more for me than it would in something more... uh, banal or cookie cutter in a totally different setting. Does that make any sense? It does. Okay. I agree a hundred percent. And that this is using some, some old ideas to prop up a difficult to sell story. Yeah. That's what I was seeing too. This, this was a difficult sell, uh, particularly because it was mostly women and black women who were making this movie, uh, which is inherently difficult to sell in Hollywood, unfortunately. And I, I, I agree. I think Viola is working with a, she doesn't have complete freedom. This isn't doubt where she's portraying this tortured mother trying to make the best choice and all that. But I think, for my money, the underplayed actress in this is Sheila Atim, who plays Amenza, her second in command. Oh, she was great. Oh, she's amazing. Just amazing in this. She gives such a um, meaningful, heartfelt performance and doesn't have any of that superfluous stuff. She's mm-hmm. just there to kind of balance out Viola Davis's general 
with a more she's the one uh you know whispering in the general's ear you're only human type thing mm-hmm. which works i think tremendously and she gives it this very nuanced balanced performance where she's not over the top dramatic nor is she too subtle she really walks this fine line of being emotional there's certainly a lot of emotion given to her character without overplaying her hand, which is really hard to do, especially when she doesn't get a whole lot of scenes in comparison to like Viola Davis or um, Thuso Mbedu. They get a lot of different opportunities to stretch their wings, yes. whereas she doesn't. So every scene she has, she really has to hit the hit the note perfectly, if you will. I also really loved uh, Adrienne Warren, who plays Ode. I think I'm pronouncing that right. The uh, the woman from the other tribe who's captured and stays. Oh, yes. And is kind of a friendly rival. An antagonist almost. Yes. Uh, yes. A friendly rival to Nawe. I thought she was. Oh, she's so fun in this. She's really, really good. And I really liked their relationship as it was forming like that that antagonistic but still warm kind of rivalry still friendly this like winking rivalry of like girl to me that would have been like that relationship between naniska and amenza like as they grew up like i feel like that's the kind of relationship that they would have had so i was really really bummed out to see her die i did not want that to be the case me too which Speaks to the tragedy of all of this later on, honestly. Well, having said that, I think that's a good point to break into some of the history. Uh, wait. Oh, Jesus. Okay, we got to give our, our our man, our one man, and this is Oh my due. God, if we didn't talk about John Boyega, I'm an asshole, I'm sorry. <laughs> I had all this shit to say about him, too. <laughs> We're allowed to forget about the men in this movie. I wrote him down. He's in my notes. Go ahead, Kate. We 100% are, but I love Boyega. I mean, I really enjoy John Boyega since I saw him in Attack the Block, which was years and years and years ago before he was ever cast as Finn. He he just is electric in this role in both like the swagger he has that feels entirely unearned, but yet he's trying to make it work type thing. And his ability um especially that's shown at the end because you're not quite sure how he's gonna roll when naniska comes back and she's got all of these um agoji warriors with her how is he is he gonna fall on the side of pride or on the side of sensibility and how he plays that off uh masterfully done i loved that for him that he gets to play this kind of enigmatic almost because you're never quite sure where he's gonna go right I, I think my problem with John Boyega is one of the things that, like, every time I see him, I'm like, holy shit, it's John Boyega. Like, and that's always my reaction. I'm never like. But I'm always happy to see John Boyega. I'm never unhappy to see John Boyega. But I'm just like, how is John Boyega dressed up today? For me, that's Ron Perlman. I can see that. <laughs> it's like, it's you. How are you doing, man? Yeah. I mean, I, when that happens to me, I blame myself. I never blame the actor for that. Yeah, I'm not mad at John Boyega for it, but it's it's just a thing. I'm like, every time I see him, I just see John Boyega in sure. a different costume. Well, 
Although, I did want to mention, I fucking loved his accent. He does a good job. People from this particular demographic who are, you know, people from West Africa, maybe Sub-Saharan Africa, who have probably been speaking English for a long time, whether they're doing that in their home country in Africa or whether they're immigrants, like I think his parents are, would be able to know better. But it sounds pretty accurate to me. He's of Yoruban descent, which is an ethnic group that is in that part of West Africa. So very close I think his parents might have immigrated from Nigeria, but I'm not positive. He's Nigerian British. Right. So that's pretty cool. And I'm sure that meant a lot to him to be in this, mm. in these places with the palace and like shooting the stuff that he's representing, you know, one of his ancestors, like cousins, maybe like not directly, but you know, he would have been somewhat related to this group of people. And of note, I think that should be mentioned here is that this is a really diverse cast not just because there are a lot of black actors in it, but like only two of them, two of the main actors are from the U.S. Jamie Lawson, who plays his wife, Shanti, who was also the mayor in The Last Batman, if you saw uh, The Batman, which I thought she had a very small part, but she was great in that. And Viola Davis, of course. Everyone else is either British or African. I won't go through everyone, but you have a mix of South Africans, uh, Ugandan Brits, Jamaican Brits. Uh, again, John Boyega has Yoruban descent. The main bad guy played by Jimmy Odukoya, Obaade, the leader of the, of the Oyo is Nigerian. So you have a lot of actual Africans. Accurate to where the Europa people were from at that point. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine also some of the extras, like a lot of the extras were probably African just because they hired them there. So there was some controversy about that because they were because they filmed this in South Africa. There's dancing scenes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of the dancing and the chanting and the music is South African. Ah, mm -hmm. interesting. Sure. Rather than West African descent. There was a absolutely my favorite film to read reviews of because I actually got to read a review from the Africa Report, which is like the African newspaper reporting in the in the US. And they went and talked to a bunch of people from Benin. Mm -hmm. asking them, what are your opinions on this? Mm -hmm. What did you think about it? And it was just the most fascinating review of them giving, like, these tiny little critiques that are, are totally something you would see in any film, but the fact that they're coming from uh, a country that gets, like, no representation, obviously, critiquing this big film, I was like, oh, this is perfect. I love to see the little things they got wrong. And still, the people from Benin were overwhelmingly like, yes, we got our, we oh, got our folks okay. represented. Because there is, uh, before this film was made, there is a statue of an Egoji warrior in Benin. <laughs> Like a, a giant statue, not like mm -hmm. a f like life size that we're talking like 20, 30 feet tall of an Agoji warrior. So that's how serious these folks are about their culture. And there was a lot of excitement to see how it was portrayed. And generally, the reviews were pretty positive. So that was exciting for me to see personally of like, okay, well, these folks from outside this country were able to generally do a pretty good job 
Yeah, you know, and, and we were talking about a period piece set 200 years ago. So it's in a place that doesn't have the same written history as like most European countries necessarily. So when you're doing the research, it's just going to be tough to nail every little thing down, right? Like, it, I think, at least for me, if this was about my culture, I know where I would fall, which is intent matters a lot. If the people have all the good intent to really do the research and try and make the costumes accurate and stuff, I can let go that a little dance is inaccurate or they're doing some Filipino knife fighting as opposed to whatever knife fighting the Goja would have been doing in the early 1800s. It's like, it, it is a film in the end. You kind of got to roll with it a little bit, so... And they still use period-accurate weapons, which mm-hmm. I I wanted to throw this out there for our danger-close uh, weapons dudes. One of the podcasts I listened to about this talks about how, uh, I can't remember, I think it was like 10 kilograms or something. It, oh, I have this. How big were those swords, their sword slash knives they're using? Jeff, we're calling you out. You need to, uh, you need to look this up. <laughs> it was crazy! We're going to have quite a list in the notes here of podcasts and things, articles you guys can read because it's way more than we're going to be able to talk about today. But there are, Katie found a couple of great podcasts from Africans talking about this movie and they talk about how the Agoja had five regiments. They give all the original names, but the translations basically are riflewomen, huntresses, archers, gunners, and reapers. And apparently the Reapers carried 20 kilogram swords, which is a 40 something pound sword, 44 pound sword. That were how long? I think the blade was 48 centimeters. So we're talking and and apparently they could cleave a man in half because of all the heft. I'm like, wow. Because of how heavy it was. I'm sorry. How how long is 48 centimeters? I don't know. these. Half a yard. Okay. No, that works. Pretty freaking large weapons. So, yeah, hopefully one of those guys can do a bit on the weapons in this for us, because that would be cool. They were super awesome. And those were very accurate. So were the, so were their outfits. If you look at the old photographs, the outfits are very accurate looking. Yeah, this is one of those weird things that's like right on the edge of modern recording. Right. Craziest thing I found out is that... Uh, one of the last Egoji warriors who fought in like 1890s died in the 70s at well over 100. And that is where a lot of this information comes from, is a, a woman who actually participated in the rituals of becoming an Egoji warrior and fought colonialists. You know, like a badass. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about this when we go over the history, but she fought in basically the last big war when the French eventually, uh, spoiler alert, conquered Dahomey, but that's the war that she fought in. That's Naniska, isn't it? I read that, but it's not in my notes, so. They're the two names that came out of this were Nawi and Naniska, I think. They're, one of them is based on that woman. And one of them is based on a historically named figure that like some French, I think, I think that's Nawe because I think the historical figure watches her as a young recruit decapitate somebody and then later on sees her die in battle. And I think that's Naniska. We did a lot of research for this episode, and again, it's something we're not that familiar with, so we really had to do a lot of reading 
Our returning contributor, Bill Fisher, did some research for us. I'm just going to briefly touch on what he talked about because he covers kind of the history of the slave trade in West Africa before Europeans got there. He talks about the European slave trade. He talks about Dahomey as well as what was going on in Brazil at the time. So it's more than we need for this particular conversation, but I will put that in the show notes and in our surplus ordinance. But for now, I'm just going to give you guys a brief summary of the history of the kingdom of Dahomey, initially called Abomey. The kingdom of Dahomey was founded by the Fon people in the Abomey Plain in this part of West Africa, kind of between where Nigeria and Benin, current Benin, are. There are several competing origin stories which you can look up, but in general, the kingdom existed from around 1600 to 1904 when the French conquered the kingdom. In the 1720s, I remember this film is set in 1823. It's a specific time period with specific events. But in the 1720s, Dahomey conquered two of its neighboring coastal kingdoms, Alada and the Waida. As depicted in the film, the Oyo or Yoruba kingdom, which is where ethnically John Boyega's people come from, like we said, was Dahomey's most prominent local rival, and they fought a series of conflicts ending in 1730 with Dahomey retaining domestic control but becoming a tributary of Oyo, as you see in the film, where they were paying an annual tax of arms, food, and people, aka slaves, to that kingdom. After 1740, there were several internal struggles and fights for succession in Dahomey. In 1818, Ahozu, which is the word for king, uh, in that language, Gezo or Gezu, you see it written two different ways, staged a coup and forcibly removed his brother from the throne. They talk about it a little bit in the film. His brother was a non-traditionalist and kind of had stopped doing some of the traditionally cultural things. He had a friendship and was aided by the Portuguese slave smuggler Francisco Felix de Souza, who probably loosely inspired the Portuguese character that we see in the film. Uh, under Gezo's rule, he also expanded the Agogia from 600 to 6,000. So they became a pretty formidable army. And again, they were only part of their army. There were still men in the army, so the entirety of their military was a lot bigger. This brings us to the year of the film, 1823, where Dahomey defeated Oyo and ended its tributary status. Now, as we'll discuss shortly, and as you see in the film, Dahomey was involved in the slave trade starting in the late 1600s. At first as a middleman, and later capturing their own captives from other kingdoms, often as a result of military conquest. Now, the beginning of Bill's research here talks a little bit about the West African slave trade. Something important to note here that I saw was that slavery in this part of Africa one of the driving factors was that people weren't allowed to own land in these societies. The king owned all the land. So the way to amass wealth was to own slaves, own people that could then work the land and then you could produce a product and pay tribute to the king and trade, etc., etc. So that was one of the reasons why they had slaves. Uh, once the Europeans came in, you know, saw that there was already a slave trade going and kind of took advantage of that, and that was one of the factors that helped along, so to speak, the European slave trade. But they also needed to trade with the Europeans. So these African nations needed to trade with the Europeans for firearms and horses, which led to making certain African states more powerful. That was going to be a factor in these conflicts in between these African kingdoms. 
The evidence shows that most slaves were taken as part of military conquest by militarized African states. This is vital to understand. As Thornton states, this is in his bibliography, which again, I'll include, this is a historian. He said, quote, the fact that military enslavement was by far the most significant method is important, for it means that rulers were not, for the most part, selling their own subjects, but people whom they, at least, regarded as aliens. It's a small point, but it's saying they were capturing people from other countries, so to speak, other kingdoms and enslaving them. They were not enslaving their own people. Bill says, I highlight this because I've heard dumbasses over the years repeat the lie that, quote, Africans sold their own people into slavery, which is only true if you consider all of Africa to be one people because they are all the same race. This is doubly stupid because the concept of race is a European invention that Africans didn't recognize. Indeed, there is more human genetic diversity within Africa than without. And side note, he also says, to be clear, I don't think any Danger Close host would think this. <laughs> but <laughs> Thanks, Bill. We appreciate you. Good looking out, Bill. That's a good point when you're talking about how these societies looked at each other. The other aspect of this that I do not want to get into super deep, but was something that was brought up, is <laughs> in America, slavery means one thing. It means chattel slavery, where... You are a thing to be purchased and sold and can be done with as you will. And that is not the concept of slavery in a lot of different places. No, we saw a different depiction of of that in the Northmen. Right. You know, and in the Vikings and... Yes, the majority of slavery in in the past is not chattel slavery. It is uh, like indentured servitude is is a better concept to own. And that is definitely the concept that as close as we can get uh, anyway to what was going on there. And you name you make an important distinction that I've made before on podcasts. And sometimes this is a little delicate, but I think historians bring it up because it's true that when you look at uh, European slavery, but especially United States slavery in our yes. country was explicitly based on race and believing that a race of people was inferior to you. And that is critical because it is what extended a lot of the problems of slavery and racism past when slavery then became illegal. We went into Jim Crow. We went into problems that extend into our country till now. If you go back to ancient Rome and all these ancient cultures that have slavery, again, this isn't to defend slavery or say that it's something nice, but it was mostly a result of you lost a war. Your choice is to either die or come and become an indentured servant or slave for us. And oftentimes those societies also allowed those people to buy back their freedom or move on from it. And they weren't considered racially inferior. So that is a very or at least not always, and certainly not in the way the U.S. did throughout its uh, initial history. We made it way worse. Yeah. Ours is one of the worst kinds of slavery that existed, I think. We absolutely did. Like, there's a, a lot of range here. And in particular, the kind of slavery that is practiced in that culture at the time was much more, here's where I'm gonna come out as that might get us some pushback is so I listened to a podcast 
And normally I wouldn't bring something like this up, but I, I really think that it plays in on what we're talking about today uh, from the African History Network show. And they had guest Professor James Small, who is black nationalist. That's the best way to categorize him, I would say, uh, considering he was uh, Malcolm X's daughter's main bodyguard for several years after Malcolm X was murdered. Rock on. And he definitely holds views that I I do not align with mine. But his episode about the Woman King was super fascinating. And it's called The Woman King and the Real History of the Kingdom of Dahomey. And the thing about this dude is he is incredibly educated about African history, in particular, this area of West Africa. As I said, I think earlier, he he's been to the palace where these things happened, where these scenes were filmed. And he talks a lot about in that episode about the difference between chattel slavery and servitude slavery in that. And, and I, again, I do not endorse everything this man says, but I thought these thoughts were or I thought his points were interesting enough to bring to the show of there's a difference between chattel slavery and servitude slavery where you don't have prisons. Instead, people are put to work to learn to value their place in the community. And that was kind of the basis for this, whether or not you you captured someone from an enemy state and then you allow them this opportunity to become a part of your community, or you find someone in your community who's behaving in a way the community doesn't uh, support and you help them learn how to behave in a way that the community does support. And also, and this conversation obviously has a lot of nuance and subtlety to it. So I think that's kind of the way you have to listen to it. That we as three white people are probably not good at. For sure. Which is why I would say I don't want to sugarcoat it by calling it an opportunity because the opportunity oftentimes was either we kill you or you become our slave. That's the opportunity, quote unquote. Yeah. These people were going on slave raids where they were attacking a village either to uh, free some of their prisoners and then collect whoever survived the battle and make them slaves or they were just going on slaving raids because they needed workers for their palm plantations, etc. So again, opportunity might be a loose uh, yes. I, I more I more mean the uh, option. I mean the interpersonal relationships within your community, hmm. where like you have committed a crime that isn't justifiable v- via our community and. Uh, lots and lots of different cultures have practiced this. I think from what I have read, this kind of slavery is honestly the most common kind versus chattel slavery where you lose your whole identity and you just mm-hmm. become a a thing a to be bought yeah. and sold. So that whole podcast is absolutely wild and very interesting and goes on a lot of different rants, but I found it very informative about how that guy at least views this kind of story. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll add those podcasts to our notes. I'll make sure those are on there so that you guys can look them up. So Gezo and his brother, who he deposed with the help of this. It was a coup. Yes, of the Portuguese slaver, and his brother's name is Adan Zodan. Adan Zodan was much more interested in using the labor 
to build their economy and wasn't so into let's sell people off to other countries and lose our internal labor. Because let's be real here, when you are a leader of a country, you don't necessarily think about people as individual humans. You think of them as units to produce more growth for your country and success. And Adonso Don was much more about like, let's take these people, have them work the land and build it into our economy. And in order to overthrow them, Gezo had to buy in with some slavers and therefore couldn't really say like I'm I'm against this whole slavery thing because that's what brought him into power in the first place. Yeah, and Bill talks about this and I think this is the Liam, I know you haven't talked much so feel free to raise your hand or jump in whenever you want to. <laughs> Liam's like I'm not getting in on this. I will not be canceled. God damn it. We're all getting canceled this episode. No, god damn it. God damn it, no. No one's getting canceled. You're doing a good job. <laughs> Too late. That's what I knew we were going to talk about in this episode when we got to the slavery discussion is the depiction of it in this story and whether or not that's accurate or not and how much of it is fiction. And this leads into bigger conversations, but briefly, you see Gezo kind of seemingly reluctantly involved in the slave trade at the beginning of the story. And then Naniska is the one who shows them the palm plantations. I mean, clearly he knew that they had them, but she tours him through and she's like, look, this would be a better use of our people. We should instead focus on growing our economy. Which the historical Gezo did attempt. Right. The historical question about accuracy is where the motivation was. And that is mm -hmm. difficult to nail down because a lot of this history is written by white Europeans about these people. And so a lot of the history kind of puts the impetus for the end of the slave trade in this region on the British because the British on their own were realizing that slavery was kind of getting out of fashion by this point. And, you know, to their credit, they did end slavery in England well before the U.S. did, right? The best way I've ever heard it put is that the British realized it was out of fashion, and so they were like, uh, we should probably stop. Not that it was a horrific crime against humanity, just that they were like, oh, this doesn't look good anymore. We shouldn't do that. Starting to make us look bad, but they did push... You know, except for, like, all of India. Yeah, shh, shh, shh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not talking about colonialism here specifically, although we will talk about that later. I'm talking about going to Africa and taking people and bringing them back to somewhere else, to your plantations, to your colonies, to whatever. They're like, let's let the Americans do that. Let's let the or the Dutch do that, or the Dutch or whoever, right. Well, and didn't and, they try to, like, blockade the ports where the... Well, they, so they did. So this yeah. started around 1808 into the 1830s. They were really at first trying to like discourage Dahomey from continuing to practice slave trading, especially because they were trading slaves to some of Britain's colonial competitors, you know, like Spain, Portugal, whatever. And then again, from the research, seems like Gezu wasn't really playing ball. And so after the 1840s, and especially after the British blockade of these ports in West Africa in 1851 to 52, the slave trade in Dahomey was vastly reduced. It kind of went up and down through the 1870s or so. But in 1858, mm -hmm. Geza was assassinated. 
And after another series of conflicts, most slaves were moved to work in palm oil production instead of trade. So again, it was a transition out of slavery. Slaves still existed, but instead of being sold off to Portugal or to Europe or whatever, they were moved into producing more palm oil and being involved in the economy in that way. And then the end of this history here to let you know kind of what happened to the kingdom is that in the 1880s and 90s, the French colonized the region culminating in them defeating the kingdom and the Agoja in the Franco-Dahomian Wars of uh, 1892. There was two of these, and Katie mentioned the person who Naniska is based on who fought in, I think, the Second War, again, at the very end of the 1800s. Dahomey turned into French Dahomey, a protectorate, in 1894. And then fast-forwarding real quick, just so you know what happened into modern history, in in 1960, the kingdom gained independence and became the Republic of Dahomey until 1975, which I was surprised. I thought Dahomey was just an older word from the 1800s. I didn't know it persisted all the way through almost when I was born. I thought that too. It was wild to see. It was up to what, like... 1975. So Benin was renamed in 1975. And then interestingly, the king of Dahomey is still a hereditary ceremonial position in modern day Benin. And so that person comes in and does whatever cultural religious ceremonies that they do that I'm sure throw back to this time period. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting area culturally. And additionally, I'll tell you guys, uh, if you're interested in just looking up anthropological research and stuff. Jackie got me into some really good podcasts recently. I'm trying to remember if it was the New York Times Daily that did this, but they did a series on the whole colonial art problem, like the British Museum having all this stuff that was taken from other people. And like, how do you go about returning it? Do you return it? If you do return it, what kind of condition is it going to be held in in those African countries? Does it matter? Do you have a right to say, well, this is going to get destroyed? So anyways, it gets into all that. And the Benin bronzes are a big part of that discussion. And they are an art, the series of artifacts from this area. So like the Elgin marbles from Athens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that is a whole other topic, but they did touch on Benin in there, which is why I wanted to mention. Even that. if you don't care about uh, the history, like those bronzes are amazing. Just on my on my cursory Google search, I was like, "Whoa, that's some beautiful artwork right there." There was so much criticism of this film, just out and out condemning the Dahomey for engaging in the slave in the slave trade. Anything short of saying all of you are human monsters was promoting slavery was definitely like, as I talked about in my mission briefing, those are the hot takes of this very Americanized, first of all, and very white supremacist view. A lot of the reactions to this are very much based in white supremacy and uh, this idea that if this African nation isn't engaging in the most noblest of all things, far more noble than any American ever was, then really aren't they the ones at fault was kind of the tone of a lot of these articles. And the reality is, is that there was a lot of conflict and debate going on with the Dahomey people at this time about slavery. 
it's hard to record that information. But like I said, I read that review by the Africa Report, and it it talks about how when this story is taking place, the slave trade had mostly dwindled to a more bounty hunter system, almost, where a lot of the slaves that were being taken at this time are taken by people who are using this as their livelihood, where they're going out and capturing people. This isn't necessarily coming from uh, the government. This isn't a governmental trade system. This is a incidental thing that's happening that the government has to decide how they're going to react to it. So the complexity of this situation often gets overlooked. So I think part of the one of my bigger problems with the movie. Oh, finally, we get to hear it. What is it? It's the writing. (laughs) Okay, legit, legit. So I watched the movie and then I started looking stuff up on IMDb about it. And this was when I discovered that there was a a controversy about the film, because uh, as I'm scrolling down to like get to like I was looking to get to like trivia, you know, or Mm -hmm, quotes mm -hmm. or goofs or things like that. But before you get there, you see a line of user reviews. Oh, God. Hot takes. The first one was like 10 out of 10. It's like excellent movie. And then the next one after that was one. And then the one after that was two. And then another one. And then another two. <laughs> like, and I was like, what the fuck? What is happening here? So I, I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know, but I read them. And so I don't even necessarily know that it's like. And sure, there was probably a a white supremacist tone that I was not necessarily picking up on. It was just more like the claims that were being made in these IMDb comments were interesting. Like one basic ones made the analogy that this was like making a movie about the Holocaust where the Nazis were trying to save the Jews. And I was like, fuck that. I don't know a lot about the history, but that seems little drastic in comparison. You know what I mean? That is not okay. So, you know, I started doing the reading. I came across the history versus Hollywood article where, which was the, the one that said that the Dahomey would probably be better cast as the villains. There were entire other, I don't know what you, if you'd call it necessarily a kingdom, but there were other civilizations that were were being informed. Yeah. Of people like, fleeing Dahomey slave raids and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you, I think the least incendiary thing that this reminds me of. Oh, you're going to make an analogy. <gasps> I am going to make an analogy and it's a deep cut for the nineties kids. Let's hear it. Does anybody remember the Walt Disney studios production oh, of the three musketeers like live action? Yes. With Kiefer Sutherland and Charlie Sheen. Oh, I do remember this. And Oliver Platt and Chris O'Donnell and Tim Curry. Yes. Yes. So you remember this? Mm-hmm. Twasn't good. I loved it when I was little. Oh, Tim Curry played Richelieu. Yes. Yes. I do remember no, this. it wasn't it wasn't good. But it did great. give us the uh Sting, Rod Stewart, Brian Adams supergroup to sing All for One and All for Love.
So not only does it not follow the plot of the book at all, at all, like it's got the characters and they're there with their names and things. In the same way that Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame follows, you know, the original novel. So like the plot is not there. The tone is not there. But I remember watching this movie on home video and you get to the end when the king of France who has been saved by the musketeers from this evil Richelieu plot makes a really nice, long heartfelt music swelling bill Pullman independence day esque speech (laughs) about the importance of freedom to all French people. And I remember watching this and my dad going, yeah, I think that's a little disingenuous coming from the King of France there, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like a king or two later and the people are just cutting off heads. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, you could maybe make an argument that like a friend or like a, an English monarch might say those things. Scarlet Pimpernel flashbacks is all I'm saying. You know what I mean? Like where, where it was at least like the king didn't have all of the power. Cause you have this whole parliament thing, but like in France, it was just like the king that was the head of the everything. And he's like, Oh no, freedom and Liberty. Those are the things that we're fighting. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not. It's anachronistic. And it's inaccurate to the point that it's just a little dumb. Okay. I feel like that's a better comparison for this movie than saying that this is like making a Holocaust movie where the Nazis are trying to save the Jews. This is something where it's like, that's not how that King would have talked on this subject about that thing. This feels to a certain extent, like it's being made for children in its politics. I both agree and disagree. Yeah. I don't know if I take it that far, but I get what you're saying. I, I don't I'm, mean like little kids, but I mean sure. like this, it's very like it has. It's made for American adults. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> sure. But I mean, like this is a, this is a, a movie that was, if not influenced by definitely greenlit with the intention of being influenced by Black Panther's success. Yeah, this movie got greenlit because of the Dora Milaje. That the Dora Milaje are based on the Agoji Warriors. Yes. Mm-hmm. To the point where uh, Sheila Atim is both a Dora Milaje and uh, Naniska's number two. That's cool. So I think that there's a bit of a, I, and again, I don't know if this was always the intention, but I feel like there's a little bit of a, if not Disneyfication, marvelization of the filmmaking in this movie. Yeah. I mean, there's a simplification of, of a very complex and also much longer history on the topic than just the small bit of history that they're showing you in this film. Again, going all the way back to the 1600s. And while I take Katie's point that part of this was certainly being fueled economically by the Europeans showing up and buying into the slave trade and creating demand. Again, I want to emphasize this slave trade existed well before the Europeans showed up and Dahomey was not the only kingdom participating in it. These kingdoms were very militant. 
They were fighting a lot of wars to take over territory, and a lot of that was also to, again, do raids and take people. There was human sacrifice involved at certain parts, and there was also a lot of slave labor involved. So it is complicated, and we can see how much internal strife there was in Dahomey as well, not just with the other kingdoms, to where, again, this king that we see depicted had his brother killed and deposed him and took over the kingdom and had different ideas of how to run things and and how to run even the slave trade in regards to hollywood i know bill is probably kicking his radio and be like i want to say something so i'm actually going to go back to his take because he left us some editorial remarks that deal specifically with this Going back to when Liam was reading IMDb reviews, he says, uh, this is Bill now saying, people on the internet criticize the movie for being historically inaccurate. They say that it portrays Dahomey as being anti-slavery, when in fact it was one of the major slave trading states. I do think the movie fibs a lot about King Gezo. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that Gezo came around to an anti-slavery stance in the 1820s, or that he started to think about a broader African identity. That's some optimistic historical revisionism, to be sure. But it's no more egregious than plenty of other historical epics have done. Yes. Naniska is a fictional character, but she seemed very plausible to me. Yes, most Dahomeans were probably fine with the slave trade since it benefited them, and it had been going on for generations, so it would have seemed normal, quote-unquote. But certainly there would have been people who had a different view. The movie asks us to consider... What if one of those dissenters rose to prominence and actually had power? It's not all that outlandish, even if it didn't happen. It's like if 200 years from now, somebody made a movie about a person who spoke out against fossil fuels during the 20th century. The vast majority of political and economic power was devoted to fossil fuels, but there were dissenters all along too. And I think that's a really, really good point that it's like, yeah, they're fictionalizing who said what, when, and kind of who came to power and how the society shifted. That's definitely fictionalized pretty heavily, but it's historical drama or historical, uh, what's the word? I'm, what's historical fiction? Yeah, but there's a word for that. Uh, Historicization. Yeah, or like alternate history almost, right? Where you're like, well, what if you're kind of playing that game a little bit? Right. Although when you look at something like Inglorious Bastards, it's very, very obvious that that's what's at play from the style of it and from sure. the tone of it from the beginning. This doesn't make that plain. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Here, here's the thing, though. I want to bring this back to the fact that we are three Americans talking about something that happened a very long time ago. And I'm not going to do the math because I'm bad at that. And everybody knows it. <laughs> years ago. 20 years ago. There you go. There you go. But from what I have read, all of those facts that we're talking about are, are, are fucking in dispute. Like the idea that there were no African voices speaking out against slavery in Dahomey and in all of these countries is a flat out fucking wrong. There were active communities trying to fight against the idea, like the voice that uh, Naniska is giving to, they are trying to take over all of us. They will only be happy when all of us are slaves is not something that is put in their mouth. That is something that was a opinion at the time. And it was something that people fought against. It's just not something that's taught here in America. 
but it's certainly taught in Africa. Or that made the few European history books about these people. And so, again... Exactly. The idea that they're... That these folks don't have some kind of idea that, like, oh, well, we're going to put those people to slaves, and these people who we're selling them to don't care who they are. Like, that they can't logically deduce that, like, well, if they're willing to put these people in slavery, they're probably willing to put me in slavery, too, is just asinine. Like, people were fighting against this from the beginning. It's just not taught here and that's i think what this movie is is trying to touch on it's trying to give voice to that concept that there were absolutely people in those cultures saying this is a bad idea well or we just we want to move on and we have other options here we don't have to continue doing this but again it shows a layered complex society that is absolutely right. not primitive they had advanced weapons and advanced trading skills and buildings and a layered societal structure where you had a king with many wives you had nobles nobles controlled more land they had more slaves so even within that society you would have had different economic interests and a certain group of people who would have had a lot more to lose than to just say yeah i'll just let all my slaves go they can go uh get jobs and go do others and right so like again it's there was pushback against uh the king the king was not an he was autocrat. assassinated eventually so yeah <laughs> well no not that i'm saying like the king took like you you see in the film where the king is sitting on the throne and then there's those advisors those mm -hmm. advisors are there to act as uh, a checks and balances. Like those, those people aren't there at his pleasure. Those people are there to uh, provide a different voice. And that was how this culture in particular acted is that the, um, like you said, Dan, the merchants were a huge voice against that. It was, as I was listening to it described, I was like, Oh, we got a little bit of oligarchy in there. A little bit of oligarchy with the merchants just controlling stuff, huh? Yeah, it turns out power and money have an influence that is not unique to our time period whatsoever. I <laughs> Nor am our culture. Shocked. Right. So, shocked. <laughs> point absolutely well taken, Katie. However, but I still think, and this is a problem with the script, really, that. I don't think this movie does a very good job of illustrating that complexity and nuance and dissent. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. You know, from, from what you're describing, it goes deeper and further than saying, Hey, you know, man, we could probably just trade in palm oil. And then the other guy going, huh, I wonder would that work? That's the extent <laughs> of the debate in this movie. Right. Right. That's what we get. And like, yes, we are three white Americans discussing this movie. It's about issues that, you know, happened hundreds of years ago in Africa. However, when it comes to the transatlantic slave trade, maybe not white Americans, but I think the American perspective isn't necessarily one to discount because it had a huge impact culturally here. And right. And also, this was a movie written by and for Americans. Again, part of my problem with this script. Yeah, it's kind of the two white ladies wrote it. Yep, I get that. You know what I mean? And it, and it feels like it to a certain extent. 
kudos to them. Like all, you know, you have this idea and you go to your friend and you're like, Hey, let's write the screenplay. And then what do you do with it? You go, well, this isn't really our story. So let's get everybody whose story it is in on this and let them make it. But like, maybe bring them into the writing room or something. Like, you know what I mean? It's, I'm going to burst your bubble a little bit here. You know, where Maria Bello got this story was from her time working in Benin. No, yeah, I understand. Like, I know where Maria Bello got the story. She definitely in- included those folks and in And I cannot imagine that this black woman director did not have a say in editorializing the script. Like, it just, from what she described about how proud she was about this movie, it definitely mm-hmm. did not sound like something where the studio was like, here's these two white ladies writing your script. Do you want to direct it? Like, that's not what it sounded like at all to me. So, like, you know. No, it's not, because Maria Bello was one of the producers. Like, and that is one of the things where, like, part of the producer's job is to get the team together and, like, hire the folks and be like, hey, who are we getting in and moving those pieces around? Who do we want to make this story? Exactly. Sure, but none of them have writing credits. Okay, fair. That's true. And most of my problems come from the writing credits. Like, sure. come from the script. And and you know what? hundred fucking percent, because here's, here's, let's talk a little bit about the problems with this movie. I I didn't I I was very generous in my mission briefing when I said that this was a bloated script because that was universally every critic's problem with it was like they were trying to do too much and I was kind of of two minds about it because do we think I I mean I'm not asking for us because I know is Braveheart doing too much with all of those little side stories and romances? Uh, no, not in general audiences, but for us, we're like, eh, maybe cut that shit out, dude. Uh, and it's the same with this and that this was trying to appeal so much to be action war movie blockbuster that it kind of leans into stuff that for me was like, we don't, we don't need any of that. Like, Naoi's relationship. That whole thing was just, we don't need that. Okay, so let me ask you, without getting into any more controversy, how would you guys make it better? If you were editing and just trimming side stories and things to make it tighter? or make I would the- cut the mother-daughter plot line first and foremost. That takes okay. way more mm. oxygen than it needs to. Okay. I agree. Like, that pushes the bounds of verisimilitude. And it undercuts their relationship, right? It does. That relationship is so much more meaningful if there's not a blood bond there. To me, anyway. Okay. Like, that's like that's already a fraud enough. Where she's seeing herself reflected. Exactly. The, it's, it's another layer of nonsense that doesn't have any place in this movie. I think somewhere, somebody along the line wanted this movie to be different and special. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen they well here's the thing they didn't appreciate what this movie had to offer so they thought they had to like this totally screams of like producer meddling or of like studio meddling of like well we can't just appreciate this for the truly fascinating story of what's going on we got to sprinkle in all these tropes otherwise how are audiences gonna connect right that's kind of what it it felt like to me. So yeah, definitely like cut out the cut out the romance and cut out the mother daughter stuff. Or if you're gonna have the romance, like slim it down, bare bones that shit. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely it has to be a whole lot more unspoken stuff. Yeah, 
You know what I mean? The one moment that I liked is where she gave him the thing and then took his knife when he's like, I don't have anything to give you like my dick. <laughs> <laughs> and instead she just steps into him and then like takes the knife that I thought was a neat little play on the expectations of that scene. But like not worth having that whole fucking subplot in there. But I think if you cut the mother daughter story, there's room for that uh, romantic aspect to grow without feeling like too superfluous. And also just my, again, this is coming from a culture that is not that culture whatsoever. And from a time period that is not that time period, statistically, like some of them had to be lesbians, right? That is a very good question, actually. Yes. <laughs> But I mean, like, uh, it all is, of them are it just is like, a well, good no question. Men. The answer is yes. Right. Because you know what? You can't have a certain population of humans without having people who are attracted to people of the same gender. Right. So, yes, there are absolutely lesbians in this. And and trans men. Let's be yeah. clear here. There's Because there was a certain thing discussed of were these women considering themselves, quote unquote, men once they made their kill? Like that was a discussion that I heard repeated over and over again in my research. Also is something that we don't see in the film because I think it would have just been more bloating and more complication. Right, and I don't, I am fine with having a femininity that includes this kind of intensity. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, so I'm, I'm fine with them cutting it out. Right. And I was going to add that I can't remember if it was just the noble women or the King's wives in particular, but they had a cultural tendency to take on a, I forget if it's called little wife or something like that, where it was a woman that they brought in to sort of man. Now I can't remember because it's not in front of me, but it was either to teach them or to raise them into the aristocracy. And the, the history made a point to point out that it's like this, these weren't specifically homosexual relationships, but it was clearly something where like the society was open to them doing that and bringing them under their wing. So inevitably I'm sure there were some sexual relationships at times in those situations right yeah exactly that's a layer of societal complexity that you could have fit into this movie if you didn't pack more bullshit into it i mean did you not see naniska and amenza as lovers because i did i thought it was ripe for it but i didn't see it explicitly in there i it looked to me like gal pals gal pals it should have been more overt from for my taste yes i don't want to step out of my lane here and speak for potentially lesbian black women 200 years ago in a country i've never been in but right <laughs> <laughs> sorry i just had to lay that whole sentence out before i said anything i will say there is the added layer that i am familiar with and that you do see depicted in other films like aliens of all the weird uh comparisons to make here of camaraderie and military training and growing up together and that kind of thing. I, and I'm not saying that it's not plausible that they would have also been lovers. I'm saying that that layer adds a whole other complexity to thing where I think both for the actors to perform it and for you looking at it from the outside, it's hard to interpret 
body language and closeness when you're adding that layer of society to it. Again, in our society, that's hard for outsiders to determine, let alone 200 years ago in a totally different culture. So it could go either way, but I'm just saying we're talking about some very nuanced, very complex things here from a long time ago in a totally different place. I think if I were to pick something, I I agree with kind of what you guys are talking about cutting out to sort of slim the script down and make it a little more streamlined. Although... I didn't have too many problems with the pacing. I thought the pacing was a good mix of action and drama. But I would say that starting off with Jimmy Odukoya's character of Obaade, the Oyo captain or leader or whatever, he very mm-hmm. much plays the big, bad, like heavy. You know, like he looks mean. Right. And I'm like, okay, that's a little tropey. I mean, he's a good bad guy. Like he does a great job with the performance. The fighting scenes are great. His death scene is amazing. I mean, I didn't necessarily pick this up the first time I saw the movie, but did you notice that Naniska takes his blade and lets him stab her in the forearm and then turns her arm around and stabs him in the chest while the blade is in her forearm? I was like, holy shit. Like, that is a badass death scene. And Mm -hmm. I love the fighting and the choreography and that they really sold. But imagine if Obaade had been a little more nuanced of a character and you understood his motivations a little bit more other than just wanting to dominate this other culture. And imagine that we would have gotten not side stories, but just a little bit more of the perspective of them being raided. Now, granted, the film starts with that. It shows the Agoja raiding, I think they're Oyo, but they're, they're, they're another, mm-hmm. another village and taking prisoners and killing them and whatever. So they do that a little bit. But I don't know. I was kind of stuck in the middle there where I'm like, there is a slightly more nuanced story to tell here where if you can l- allow us to have some empathy for the other side, you could tell something a little more interesting here as opposed to like good guys, bad guys, kind of. It's not black and white and it's not 100%. Like they did try to do that a little bit, but I think they could have gone a little further with it and, and it would have been more interesting. And I, and I think that is part of where like that more controversial criticism comes from is the the part that isn't just being argued in bad faith, but the the idea that it's like you're taking this and making like a distinct good guys, bad guys kind of movie when that's not really the conversation that this movie should be necessarily having. Like that's a much more detailed landscape that you're trying to paint than just good guys, bad guys. Even that raid in the beginning is ostensibly them trying to get their people back that were taken from them. Right. Mm -hmm. They're not specifically going on a slave raid. Right. They are going and trying to rectify a slave raid that was perpetrated on them. I think they take prisoners as slaves, which is accurate. They take the women that they didn't like. They, they didn't harm the women that they found in that, in the, the Mm -hmm. one structure killed all the men. Mm-hmm. And then said, hey, ladies, you're coming with us because all your men are dead, like essentially. Which is probably historically accurate for that kind of uh, military raid is what would have happened. I agree with all of that. As I've said, like the nuance, adding more depth to it, giving us more wide character development rather than like these snapshots that kind of play into stereotypes or tropes that we expect. Uh, I'm going to call this the Braveheart complex because I saw a lot of comparisons to Braveheart with this. Uh, Unjustified for many reasons, not in the least because Gina Prince-Bythewood is a (laughs) 
million times better director than Mel Gibson. But this movie, I think, really tries to play both sides in that I am also kind of okay with a Braveheart-esque action story set in this. I don't necessarily need that greater depth, but it would have been really nice to see it. In the same way that Outlaw King could have explored a whole lot more depth than it did, although it did do a pretty good job. And I think this movie kind of falls into that category of it's trying to like be its own slightly nuanced thing while still hitting all the points of a big budget action war movie. I'm really torn about it because I don't think the movie we're talking about that hits all these points and is more nuanced would have been as successful. This movie is pretty like easy to watch and it's easy to get into for most people. Liam, you're not most people. No judge. People are going to be able to enjoy this without any historical research. Whereas the movie that the three of us would have liked definitely would have had so much more nuance in it. So I, I feel real torn about it in that I think both ways have their value. This movie for the kind of film it was, was pretty successful. Probably wouldn't have been as successful if they had dived deep into these, not because it would have been a worse movie, but because it wouldn't have hit general audiences for lack of a better word, pleasure points, where it's like, yes, this is what a movie's supposed to do. You know, like for people who go see Transformers movies and that's like their hide of cinema, no judge if that's your thing, you can watch this movie and enjoy it. If the movie that the three of us are talking about isn't going to necessarily appeal to that kind of viewer, I think. And so I'm halfway between us and... Well, populism can be good, right? And now it's time for The Breakdown, the part of the show where we ask ourselves our three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did you like it? Liam? Oh man, the objective of this film. That is hard to glean for me to a certain extent. You know, I'm sure one of you is probably Katie has read a lot more interviews with people who were involved in the filmmaking. So I'm just kind of judging it from the product that I'm seeing. I think the objective of the film was to make a successful, lucrative blockbuster action film that centered on black women as the driving force of this action blockbuster film and to have as diverse a team of voices putting this product forth for public consumption as possible. That's the the big objective that I, I really think is a play on screen anyway. I find myself asking like an unofficial fourth question from the the three that we typically ask. Ooh. Harkening back to a lot of the things that I wrestled with oddly on one of our Patreon episodes, the Fight Club episode. Not an expected statement, all right? Let's hear. I'm trying to to figure out for me anyway in my mind if this movie existing as it is 
is a net positive. Okay. If what I think the objective is what it is, I think it's evidently pretty on target. I know it didn't perform in the award circuit like uh, like they may have been hoping for. Yeah, no, not at all. But from a money perspective, it did very respectably at the box office. Not Black Panther money, but more money than this would have gotten on its would have gotten on its own if it weren't kind of riding that wave of the success of Black Panther. Wouldn't have gotten greenlit, wouldn't have gotten greenlit with the budget that it got, and might not have had the same distribution, therefore public reception, critical reception, things like that, had it not been for Black Panther. As far as did I like it, I don't think I did overall. The saving grace of this movie is its performances for me. And yes, like the 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 costumes and the amount of detailed work in the production design like was was all excellent. As much as I hate to say it, I don't live and die on production design though. It's appreciated, but uh, that's not why I enjoy the films that I enjoy. The acting in this by and large was really top notch. From the people that the acting was top notch, like there it was just a good number of really, really impressive performances uh, that we've we've talked about at at some length. I think the writing in this movie is hot garbage. Whoa! I think the plot structure that they've given us for this movie is hotter garbage. I think it's it's one of the tropiest trope tropes to ever trope since trope went to trope town. Like it is <laughs> it is tropey AF, and it really frustrates me because watching it, it it feels very highly polished and watered down and shiny without much grit or substance to it. And that's a real fucking shame because like some of these performances have a lot of grit and substance to them and are rough around the edges in all of the best ways. And I think the actors really did a good job of elevating this material beyond where it should have been. And I think the brunt of the credit goes to them for the success that this movie found because they are the window into this movie that my, I found myself able to crawl through. This history is a bit of a minefield trying to navigate, as we've discussed, lots of arguments against this movie and its historical accuracy, plenty of rebuttals. Most of them we have, we have gone on record very at length here. But yeah, I don't know if this movie just existing as it is, is good enough. Like it could have been so much better and could have had so much more to say and could have had so much more going for it. I want the rest of this movie to be as good as the acting that is in it. You know, my my stupid woke ass like really wants this movie to succeed and wants more movies with black women as action heroes in full facing that and people to go see these movies and for real historical entities like the Agoje to, to have a more common place in our public discourse. I don't know if this movie will do it, but I would like to see that be a thing that, that like, that's not the thing that makes the movie unique. I think this movie is putting forth something that is a substandard product that is Writing. What was it, Dan? You said something very at the very beginning in your answer to Katie's question. 
and I wish I'd written it down because I can't remember exactly how you, how you phrased it, but it was like, we, we just kind of like wanted this movie to succeed, you know, and we had certain expectations for it. Well, we talked about the title a lot. Yeah. And maybe we were giving it a bit of a, like some of the things you didn't necessarily mind because maybe you were just giving it a pass or, or whatnot. And I feel like that's what they took a lot of presumption that like, because they were doing something so special with the production and how were they were making it and the story they were telling. Yeah. The concept was I enjoyed the ride quite a bit. So by the time I got to the end where she was getting crowned woman King, I was like, Oh yeah, this movie's supposed to be about a woman King. What the fuck? And like, I realized that there were things that I was missing out on in the plot, but I rode the wave there and and I think that's kind of what they assumed we were going to be able to do is just be like, oh, here, we're here to watch a movie about this badass woman from Africa who led this army and did this thing. And it's great. And and when you have that to work with, it's like a narrative that we can all jump in on and be enthusiastic for. Maybe you don't have to write a good movie and have it be successful. Like, I feel like so much of the storytelling in this was like fucking bare minimum what it had to do to be a coherent movie. And then they just sort of like said, well, that's, that's good enough. So no, I didn't like it. I really wish I did. Uh, I would have liked to. And there, like I said, love some of the performances, but the movie as a whole, I did not much care for. No, Katie, your turn. (laughs) Follow that (laughs) more succinctly if possible. Maybe. Okay. I got it. All right, so I'm I'm a lot less cynical about this. I think the objective of this was to tell a story about the Agoje, the Dahomey warriors who were very unique in history and to bring people's attention to these amazing women and this very different society that produced them and to make people more interested in what exactly happened while also providing big blockbuster fanfare where you can sit down and watch it. You don't need to care about those things, but if you're the kind of person like me, you're going to see something like that and be like, I would like to know more. And then you're going to go and listen to six podcasts about it (laughs) and uh, hours and hours of information. And it'll give you a different perspective on the African diaspora and all of this. Like, I think that's the objective of the film is, is to both capture general audiences with its agreedly, often far too tropey, story all of those love story that love story between nawi and malik is just but can you say much more for the love story in last of the mohicans yes yes oh god katie jeez don't bring back bad memories of you hating on our favorite film come on i mean (laughs) i'm not sure i could the love story is like central to the very thin plot of that movie not the main one with like the sister where she oh alice uncas and alice no okay that one i agree is is underdeveloped sure i too will throw myself off a cliff for a man i've known for three weeks if that yeah that's reasonable i thought you were talking about like daniel day lewis and madeline stone i was like oh my god i was like there's nothing else to the plot except that love story i'm like that's the only thing there is i mean even that's (laughs) okay this has already been litigated (laughs) (laughs) but 
I think the objective of this film is to is to capture that, is to bring people into it. And for a certain section of the audience, that's really going to appeal to them. If you are a 14-year-old of a certain persuasion, or even an adult of a certain persuasion, that love story is really going to hit you. For others, it's going to be the history and so on and so forth. I don't think I want to know people that this love story works for. Liam, be nice. I mean, you have children, right? <laughs> and listeners. <laughs> have, you, have you never met a, a tween girl? Because as someone who has one in my household, the love stories they fall for, you're like, oh, sweetie, that's really problematic. That's not something you should... <laughs> not a good idea. But I digress. I think... Is it on target? Uh, mostly. Mostly. I think it kind of like doesn't hit any of those points full on. It, it isn't a deeply researched historical epic on screen. I think it is deeply researched on the back end. Behind the scenes. Yeah, it doesn't show on screen. It isn't a, you know, a captivating love story. It isn't this deep mother-daughter relationship exploration like it never really gets into any of these things that it's touching on but it kind of tries to gloss over all of them so it kind of works it wants to be so much right it's trying it wants to achieve these heights but i think it's limited by trying to do too many things at once because it's being asked to do that it is as is in my reading, a common experience with this kind of movie, especially made by, uh, you know, made by a woman and a black woman at that. You're asked to be the end all be all and be perfect with your execution. And if you're not, well, then you failed. I try to explicitly remind myself like, okay, well, how would I feel about this if it was someone else making it? And therefore it works. It's, it's fine in that regard, I think, on the objective. Did I like it? Yeah, I really liked watching it. I saw all the weak points. And I was like, mm, that doesn't really work for me. But the amazing choreography, the great acting, because let's be real here, how many risks it takes, how many difficult subjects it touches on, even if it only lightly brushes against those topics, it is still touching on a lot of difficult issues that you do not see addressed in most mainstream films. I really liked that part of it. And I think the fact that we got to see Viola Davis get absolutely fucking jacked and just kick ass was like, all right, I will forgive the movie a lot because I want to see Viola Davis get absolutely fucking jacked and have just a, for lack of a better term, balls out fight scene with a dude who's so much bigger than her and so much more like imposing mm -hmm. if you were to compare the two and have her just rock it was, I don't know, like wish fulfillment. It was like, oh, yes. Yeah, that was good. Viola Davis is like 45. Right. And to see someone who's of that age just fucking kick ass like that in a way that would be totally normal in Arnold Schwarzenegger or uh, Sylvester Stallone or Jean-Claude Van Damme. Like it's it, it'd be totally expected even now when they're in their like their 70s and 80s getting to see Viola Davis do that was uh, 
heartwarming. I liked it, and I think it's totally worth the watch. You just need to temper your expectations with what this movie is trying to do, I think. Dan, are you ready? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm thinking about different things, but I'm not going to swerve too far from what you guys said because I am right on board with most of the things you guys said. Uh, I'll have to paraphrase because I was looking for her direct quote and I couldn't find it, but I do think that Gina Prince-Bythewood was quoted as saying she wanted to make a powerful film with black women at its center and reclaim some black history. And in my opinion, I don't think she meant reclaim as in rewrite. I really meant she meant like to take a story that most Americans don't know anything about this culture or this place and bring it into the mainstream. So was it on target for that? Absolutely. I also, like Liam, wish that the most interesting and coolest part of this film wasn't the setting, the people it's based on, and the culture, and the set design, and the you know beautiful backgrounds, the filming locations, the cinematography. Shout out to Polly Morgan, who was the DP on this. She did a great job. I thought... Oh, thank you. Polly Morgan was awesome. Sometimes slightly too polished, maybe. Like, yes, I could have... Maybe like to see a little more grit here and there, but overall, the lighting, the makeup, the costume design, and the cinematography all worked really well together to really make this feel like an A-list, big budget picture that did it with only $50 million, which nowadays is, you know, not a crazy budget. The fight scenes and the choreography were amazing. The music and the sound design did exactly what they were supposed to. They were great. Yeah, maybe the tribal singing is from South Africa and not from Benin, but it was really great and it did the job. So maybe, you know, not the most accurate thing, but they sold it. Uh, the, The group scenes where they're singing. I don't know if they recorded all the singing and stuff there or whether they recorded it later, but again, they sold it. Uh, costumes were not only great looking, but accurate. The death scenes, both Izogi and Ade's death scene, which I already described, but that Viola Davis kills him like a gangster for being someone, you know, not quite half his size, but definitely smaller. Also, I appreciated that the warriors had a variety of body types. You had big old tall Mm -hmm. buff women and you had smaller women like our uh, protagonist Naoi. So I really liked that that seemed accurate that you would have had that mix of body types. They did work really hard on doing their research. We kind of talked about the historical controversies here. We didn't get to mention the historical consultant, uh, Leonard Wanchikon, who is from a mile and a half away from this village in Benin. So again, a person who it's his culture, it's his people. And so he had a vested interest in really looking this stuff up and being accurate on top of most likely being a historian since he was the historical consultant. So like Katie and Liam, I'm disappointed that this film wasn't less and more less to cut out the fat and be more streamlined and not have the love story and not have these things that it didn't really need. Oh, one more thing that I thought was really cool was the termite mound IEDs. I'm like, okay, that's a cool idea that I've never seen (laughs) in a film. And when I watched it, I'd just gotten back from Namibia where those termite mounds are everywhere. So I was like, that's a genius idea. Like that was really cool. Uh, I don't know if that's based on history, but that was a, a great call. So pull out some of the side stories and add a little more nuance and kind of 
some closer alignment to the real history and not making it as much good side, bad side kind of thing. And give a little more depth to the other characters' motivations. Like, again, the main baddie, I would like to see a more complex character there. I think really what I wanted with this topic is an indie movie that would not have performed as well at the box office. And I think we're kind of all on the same page there, that the movie we all would have liked to see based on what we've read into the research and what we know about the period, etc., would not have drawn in as big audiences and would not have you know, made double its production budget, but it would have been a better movie. I think because I agree with Liam that the best parts of this are kind of the shiny exterior and the first layer. But when you get down to the core of it, I didn't find the writing to be bad and the tropes didn't bother me too much, but again, it was a little disappointing. It could have been so much better. It could have been more subtle. It could have been a more original story Instead of relying on the fact that this is just a topic and a people that haven't really been covered by Hollywood before. And I don't know if this is that fine line, which I admit is very difficult to do as a director to walk where you're trying to get funding. You're trying to get this film made. It took them a long time. And it's like you need to deliver for the studio. So like I realized that's a tough job and I certainly wouldn't have been able to do a better job. But I wish that they had leaned a little bit harder on yeah, making a better story that they wanted to make as opposed to trying to please the audience. It does feel like they're trying to hit two targets at the same time that are too far apart. Liam? Sorry, that's, and I hate to jump in, but like that's kind of like where I'm going with like the net positive aspect is like, I guess you're kind of doing, hoping for one of two things when making a movie like this, where either this is the one chance we're going to get to make this movie mm-hmm. about these people. Absolutely. We're probably not going to get another shot at it. So we should do it as well as possible and make the best movie we possibly can. Or is this going to lead to more better movies being made after it? Yeah. This movie, I don't know if that's going to do either one. Right. And also, is anyone ever going to be able to cover the Agogia again? I don't know, because this story was told with a big budget. Like, you could try, but it would be difficult to sell that movie to a studio because they'd be like, oh, well, Woman King just did that and it did fine. It was great. You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Liam. I do think this is a net good because I think based on some of the reactions and some of the things Katie was reading that there are a bunch of kids in Benin who can watch this American movie when they get it over there and be like, oh, this is so cool. These are our ancestors. We have statues of them here. And like, that is just not something they get to see every day. And there are. And and you best believe that more than one comment was about you got these specific different things wrong about X, Y, Z. Right. For sure. <laughs> it also inspires those, uh, those kids from Benin to be like, I'm going to do this, but make it. Sure. Better. But it's like, by comparison, how many films do Irish kids have to look back at the several different periods of troubles in Ireland that there have been? I mean, a lot, right? Some good ones, some bad ones, yep. Sure, but like all those historical periods have been covered in indie films and in big films. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I love some of those films, but I'm saying it is nice to see a people and a topic that has never really been covered by Hollywood before, at least not in the mainstream. And I give them a lot of credit for that. So yeah, like I am very lenient towards this film. If it was something else that didn't matter, I could shit on it more, but honestly, I'm, I'm glad it exists. I think it is a net good and I'm glad that they did it. You know, is it perfect? No. 
So did I like it? Yeah. You know, like, again, overall, I was along for the ride. I ended up watching it three times because we kind of delayed this recording. And so I really got to see a few more details here and there. But I never did get to see more nuance that I missed the first time or something better in the story that I didn't quite catch because the story is what it is and the nuance is what it is. And even the great, at times, incredible acting from some of these actors can't really save the script from itself again not to say that it's terrible but just it doesn't have the nuance it doesn't have that art house feel where you're like oh man that was such a cool interesting story with all this varied nuance etc so i would be very happy to continue watching more films from this team whether that's the writers and the director whether it's these actors whether it's the cinematographer or all of them together and likely it Assuming that they keep getting better and better deals and keep getting jobs where they can make what they want and get bigger budgets and explore interesting cultures if that's the direction they're going, this likely will not end up being my favorite film from that team. But it is a good start, and I've seen much worse starts. So, yeah, I think if you haven't seen this, it's definitely worth watching, because if nothing else, it'll inspire you to read some of the history and some of the research, but you can start with our surplus ordinance because Bill wrote up a great paper. Again, there's also several hours of podcasts and articles and other stuff that you can get into. And I think it's really fascinating. So yeah, this was a confusing one, I suppose, on on how to feel about it. But that's my take. To say the least. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the first time we've also... Mostly, I think, covered the topic of transatlantic slavery on the podcast, which is a big, tough one and not really our uh, lane. So hopefully we did all right with that. Listeners, you can let us know. But I'm I'm just going to apologize for everything I said here because it was probably all failure. (laughs) I would not say that. Because that's that's how my brain works, I can't remember. Not that Katie doesn't normally do research, but this is the first time... I've seen Katie do this much research for an episode, so she really worked hard on looking into it. Liam just came here to tell us that he hates things, and, you know, that's his job. That's right. That's why we love him. I was perfectly in my lane. I don't know where you guys were. We knew exactly what to expect from Liam. I came here to shit on a thing and then leave. And you you did it. Congrats. I did job, it. Liam. You're the Perfect. winner. Now. I got to talk about the Three Musketeers. Right. That's a good day. It's a win. It's all for love, baby. All right, you guys. Thanks for the work, and thank all of you listeners for tuning in. Liam, what are we doing next? Well, next we're going to uh, another light topic. Just kidding. We're going to be doing... (laughs) (laughs) We're going to another very heavy topic, folks. So uh, stick around for this. From 1961, Judgment at Nuremberg. Bam. This is a fictionalized depiction of the Nuremberg trials after the big names had already gone through the war crimes tribunal post-World War II. Uh, So high command generals, things like that have already been tried. And now they have moved on to trying the judges who passed a lot of the sentences for people to be sterilized or to go off to this camp or that camp. And so it is a tribunal of three judges judging other judges who were basically in their position, even in the same room. 
not so many years before. Oh, I did not know that. Okay, interesting. This has been requested many times, and people have brought it up a lot. Even Liam's brought it up in our previous discussions, so it's been a long time coming. I'm very familiar with it. I actually directed the stage play of this uh, a number of years back, so uh, this one is I know very well. And again, these were big in the 60s, but this is one of those movies, not with the stunt casting necessarily that we saw in like The Longest Day and A Bridge Too Far and and those films. But this cast list is fucking stacked. We've got Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster, Marlena Dietrich, Judy Garland, Montgomery Cliff, a very young pre-James T. Kirk, William Shatner, and... This was probably kind of a breakout role for him, but uh, Maximilian Schell, who won Best Actor for his performance in this. The night sky was dark for all the stars were in the movie. All right, you guys. We will talk to you all on the next one. Bye. Bye. Got to understand what happens from here is in our hands. From mighty king.